Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior associate pastor, Dr. John Light. We're continuing tonight our series in the book of Luke, which we'll be doing through the end of this month. And we're in Luke chapter 11, verses 5 through 13. Luke 11, 5 through 13. The words are in your bulletin as well. And last week, if you were here, Pastor Kiefer looked at the Lord's Prayer. And this is part of the same passage. So this follows after Jesus gives the words of the Lord's Prayer. Let us uh, hear God's word. And he, Jesus, said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because... He is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Father, we ask you to speak, O Lord, even as we've sung. Speak to our hearts. Speak by your Spirit, through your word, and Change us from within by the power of the gospel as we look to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the passage before us, as I just said, is connected to the Lord's Prayer. And we saw last week this this pattern, this model for the categories of petition that Christians are um, guided to be praying regularly to the Lord. And... Yet in addition to this pattern or outline of the content of our petitions that the Lord gives, Jesus goes on in the verses before us here to give us a clear call and encouragement for his people to persevere, to be persistent in prayer, in coming to him with their requests. To persist boldly, we might say, boldly and expectantly to God in prayer. And isn't that something that all of us always feel a deep need to be more God-centered and spirit-empowered in our prayer, in our life of prayer before God? And I would like us to look at this text under three main points. First of all, the call to persevere in prayer. Secondly, the character of God to answer. And then the comprehensive gift of the Holy Spirit. How do you like that? I don't usually do 
um, alliteration like that, but the call to persevere, the character of God to answer, and the comprehensive gift of the Holy Spirit. I didn't even have to stretch to get that last C. It was in my notes. And there it is. So that doesn't happen with me very much. So you, you can't forget my points here tonight. And so let's look at these in the time that we have. Well, the first is uh, the call to burst to persevere in prayer. And that is the biggest chunk of our scripture in verses 5 through 10 of our text. And uh, these verses contain both this little parable Jesus tells and the lesson he draws from it in verses uh, 9 and 10. So let's look at this call to persevere in prayer. This parable is about a man who has a friend come to him, and this friend comes to him at midnight. And in that ancient culture of Israel, hospitality was a sacred duty. It's something that you did. Remember when Abraham had the visitors come to him and, you know, immediately he has his wife Sarah prepare a a lamb or a goat for them. And he, he springs into action for these visitors to give them, to prepare them a meal. That was the expectation. There weren't, you know, there weren't Hampton Inns in those days, as we all know. And there was, they couldn't swing by McDonald's on the way to your house and pick up a Happy Meal or anything. And so, uh, If a friend would come from a long journey, the first thing that he would need would be a meal. And apparently this person didn't have any bread left. And in that culture as well, bread, one commentary said, bread was the knife and the fork and the spoon of the meal. In other words, you used it to get the meat and the, you know, the juices and everything. You needed bread with your meal. So that was fundamental to any meal. And here he was without any bread. How could you have a meal without bread? And, and so he goes to his friend's house. And the story turns really humorous at this point. It's supposed to be funny. Jesus knows his audience will be smiling when he talks about this friend and the excuses his friend gives Uh, the answer comes from within. Do not bother me. The door is now shut. Well, he knew that. He was knocking at the door. Um, And uh, my children are in bed with me, probably a one-room house, and they had their mats and so forth on the floor. The kids were all asleep. He didn't want to disturb them. You mean you really can't tiptoe over the kids and open the door? Um, I cannot get up and give you anything. Jesus wants his audience to be smiling at this point. The man does not want to get up and help him, we don't know, but the so-called friend keeps banging at the door. You know, I don't know if you've ever had anyone bang at your door at night. Every once in a while over the years, we've had someone knocking at our door with an emergency in the middle of the night. I won't go into all that, but it's startling. And, you know, you wake up and you think, what is this? You open the door, of course. Maybe that's not always wise these days, but that's what, that's what we did. And uh, the point there is verse 8. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, the ESV says. The authorized version, the King James says, his importunity, which has the sense of persistence, and the NIV has the word persistence, but the ESV is actually the most accurate of the three in picking up on this um, 
this feature of the word that has the sense of impertinence to it, of um, a shameless boldness. You know, in other words, it's not just that he stays doing that, but it's so impertinent to keep knocking on the door when everyone's asleep in there. Don't wake up the kids. Of course, as the teaching unfolds, uh, we see that it doesn't have anything to say to God being like that man who wouldn't open the door. That's not the point of the parable. The point of the parable is impudence in prayer, shameless boldness in prayer. When Patty and I were visiting Monticello the other year down in Virginia, the home of President Thomas Jefferson, we also visited the home of James Monroe, which is nearby, and it's not as big of a home. It's a smaller home, and the tour guide was giving us this tour, and it was so interesting. This is stuck in our minds because she said there were certain seasons of the year when society required that the Monroes would host friends in their house, and it wasn't just for a meal. It was for an extended period of time, like a few weeks. In the wintertime especially, many of their friends would come from far and wide and stay with them apparently for weeks. But this is the thing about this impudence. The tour guide said that the warmest room at nighttime in the house was the Monroe's bedroom. So most of the guests would sleep on the floor of the Monroe's bedroom. And they often had 12 people sleeping on the floor in their bedroom right next to their bed. And Patty and I just thought, and, and she made a point of saying, and Mrs. Monroe did not like this at all. <laughs> I don't know why that story popped into my mind this week as I read this, because it reminds me of this, this shamelessness and this impudence, really an impertinence. Uh, for our day and age, that would be an impertinent thing to do, <laughs> to say, do you mind if I sleep on your floor of your bedroom right next to your bed? She also said, Mrs. Monroe didn't like having to pick her way through the guests uh, if she had to get up in the middle of the night. Um, so there's this sense, the main point is not that God is reluctant to answer prayer, but that we are called to be shamelessly persistent in asking God to answer according to the promises of his word. And really, when you look at the petitions of the Lord's Prayer, all of those are promises of God's word that he will build his kingdom, that he will glorify his name, that he will give us what we need, that he will forgive our sins, and that he will keep us from temptation, and all of these things that we're called to pray about. Jesus explains this lesson of persistence, of, of impudence in prayer in verses 9 and 10 by saying then, well, what we already read, and I tell you, ask and it will be given you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Notice this series is both a series of commands and a series of promises and encouragements. Um, in fact, it's really astounding Six times in these two verses, Jesus emphasizes the readiness of God to answer prayer. Six times. But there's also this sense in which the asking intensifies. Many commentators point out that ask is the beginning point and then seek 
has an intensification to it. And then finally knock, you're knocking at the door. But this is the first point. The life of prayer for the Christian is a call for persistent, persevering, prevailing prayer. And God has purposes for us to learn to keep asking him. And nothing is fundamentally wrong with what God is doing when he doesn't answer us immediately. And that's hard for us. The call to persevere in prayer. One commentator makes this point from this. If we do not want what we are asking for enough to be persistent, we do not want it very much. I found that comment very convicting. If we do not want what we are asking for enough to be persistent, we do not want it very much. When you think of the petitions of the Lord's Prayer, how much do I want God's kingdom to come? I started to jot down things that are God's will that we need to be praying persistently for, praying for people to be saved whom God has placed on our hearts. And there's a story, maybe you know it, of George Mueller praying for a friend to be saved for 60 years And you might know the answer to that story. The end of that story is that George Mueller died without seeing that fulfilled, but the friend came to Christ after George Mueller died. Praying for the nations of the world, for the gospel to go forth, for the global work of the Lord to the nations, for the missionaries we support, for the gospel to be transforming people groups, to be praying for the revival of the church, in our day, for God, God to pour out his Holy Spirit upon his church in America and around the world in, in renewal and in power such as we haven't seen in recent days. Praying for our families, for God to heal and transform even relationships in our extended families that are, that are weak and broken and hard. To give us Christ-like sacrificial love. Again, that's the will of God, but are we pleading for God for that kind of work in our families and also praying for our own growth and godliness that we would walk closely with Christ and be more conformed to his good and pleasing will. That's just the beginning of the types of things that we know are God's will, but are we, are we persistent? Are we boldly coming before the throne of grace for these things? One commentator says this about how we pray or don't pray. He says, one of the reasons we lack spiritual depth in our day is because of our failure to persist in prayer. Where do we lack it? We lack it in our family life. Our families are not as strong and as spiritually stable as they ought to be. We lack it in our personal lives. We are not progressing in sanctification as we ought. We lack it as a church. We are not seeking revival to any significant degree in our day. We are failing to reach our neighbors and our neighborhoods. Why are these things so? Because we don't pray, and when we do pray, we trifle at it. Again, I was struck by that word, that idea, that we trifle with prayer. And so that's our first point, the call to persevere in prayer. Secondly, then, the character of God to answer our prayers 
The character of God is a great encouragement to pray. And after Jesus gives this gracious command and invitation to pray and this promise that God will uh, open the door, in verses 11 and 12 and 13, he talks about the character of God. And again, he uses these two brief illustrations. He says, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now the argument here is from the lesser to the greater. If Ordinary fathers give their children good gifts. And even with our fallenness and our sin, still, that is very true. Many fathers are are good enough to give their children good things, things that are good for them. Then how much more, verse 13 asks, how much more? Do we think that God's answers are not good or his timing is not good? Yes, we will certainly struggle with the mystery of, of God's answers to prayer. And sometimes God says no, or he says, wait, or he says, I'm not going to answer it that way. And we wrestle with that. But the point is, if a good father knows if his son asks for a fish to give him a fish, he's not going to give him a, a serpent or a snake. Now, in that first illustration, we kind of get the sense that a snake could look like a fish, right? might be a little bit harder to think if he asked for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? Now, many of you know that we go to Texas to this camp every year, and I am always in the morning shaking out my shoes just to be sure there aren't scorpions in my shoes because we've found them there. We found them in the sink. And sometimes with their tail wrapped up a little bit, I can see that if you have maybe grayish eggs or bluish eggs that you might A scorpion might initially look kind of like an egg. I'm not sure why Jesus makes the analogy there, but would a father really give a child a scorpion instead of an egg? And the answer is, again, absurd. Of course not. It would take a pretty bad father to do that. Well, what is our view of God? Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, and then the same phrase, how much more will he not also with him freely give us all things? Talking about in and through Christ and his work. There's that same kind of argument. And, and the point there in Romans eight thirty two is if, if God didn't spare his son, this great gift of his son, will his children not trust him and believe him that he will give us all good things in Christ? How much more? All he does is for his people's good in Christ. I was thinking about an earthly analogy of this. You know, parents teaching their children to ride a bike, right? If you've been a parent, you've probably done that. The child gets on the bike and, you know, you hold the seat. And hopefully you tell them, because I remember once my dad didn't tell me this. And I was surprised. You say, look, I'm going to run with you, and probably when I run out of steam, you're on your own. You know, I'm going to let go. So just get ready of that. You're going to be on your own. Um, <clears throat> but it's good if the child knows that, right? Because then the child knows the father is not trying to kill me or is not deserting me. This is how you learn to ride a bike. 
I look at this passage in that light. Jesus has told us to ask and we will, uh, we will receive an answer, to knock and the door will be open for us. He's told us that the Father's character is so much better than any earthly father can be. So in a sense, think of this encouragement to prayer that we're looking at here tonight. Think of it as the Bible, our father telling us in the Bible that there are times when we're praying and he's letting go of the bike and we don't understand it. We might, we might crash, but that's for our good. We're not going to crash eternally. He's going to hold us in his hand. He's much better than a father on earth. But the point is, pray and keep praying. Nothing is fundamentally wrong. He's told us in advance that part of his purpose for us is that we learn deep things about trusting him when he doesn't answer in the way we would like him to immediately. Think of it this way. The character of God as Jesus describes it here, and as the Bible is clear from front to back, the character of God and his love for us in Christ gives us a sense of security in coming to our Father with our petitions. That's what Jesus is saying. How much more will your heavenly Father answer you? And note, God is more inclined and willing to hear us and answer this than any earthly father. Think of the very best earthly father you've ever known. And think God is so far beyond that in his goodness to us, in his kindness to us, in his willingness to hear us. God does not want us to hesitate to come to him in prayer because we might have a sense that he is unconcerned for us or that he doesn't care. Jesus is saying, no, that's not the truth. He wants us Uh, not to feel at all unsure in our access to him. And that's because we come not in our own righteousness and our own merit. We come through the merits of Jesus Christ, his life on our behalf, his death to pay for our sins. Let me just say this. This sense of security in coming to God in prayer is of great, of very great importance in helping you and me to sustain a life of prayer. This sense of security because of the character of our God, because we're united to Christ, is very, very important to help you and me to sustain a life of prayer. Because when things are going wrong and life seems very mysterious and you're wondering if God is hearing, We need this sense of security that our Father loves us in Christ and he is at work and we can trust him. The character of God. God delights in his children coming to him. And so we can boldly come to his throne of grace. And that brings us to our third point. God's comprehensive gift of the Holy Spirit as the answer to our prayers And this is really the end of verse 13 where the verse says, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Really, this this text has this, what we might say is a surprising twist at the end. 
It's surprising because the Lord's Prayer doesn't mention the Holy Spirit. And all that Jesus has just said about prayer and asking and seeking and knocking, there's no mention of the Holy Spirit in all of this. So suddenly, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Where did that come from? It's really a surprise, but it's actually the climax of this entire section on prayer. Of all of God's gifts to us, none is greater than the gift of God himself in the person of the Holy Spirit, who is the person of the Godhead who communicates to us all the fullness of God's gift for us in Christ. All the blessings of salvation are given to us in Christ. It's interesting because in Matthew's account of this text, in Matthew seven eleven, it says, how much more will the Father give good things to those who ask him? Here, good things are summed up as the gift of the Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit do in our lives? Again, I just jotted down some of the ways the Holy Spirit is so vital and central to God's work in our lives. The Holy Spirit communicates the very presence of God to us. When we say Jesus dwells in me, it is the Holy Spirit who communicates to us the presence of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit gives us eyes to see clearly the beauty and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Initially, when we come to faith in Christ, to see the sufficiency of Christ to save us, and then day after day as we walk with Christ, to see the glory of Christ as we're being transformed from glory to glory, even by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit teaches us the Word of God. The Holy Spirit illuminates our minds and our hearts to God's truth so that it's not just a dead book. I don't know about you all, but... I tried to read the Bible in 11th, in 11th grade. I thought, well, I better read it. You know, I had the Bible I received when I was a communicant, became a communicant member of the church. I started Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. That's where I stopped. Leviticus did me in. I kept falling asleep when I was reading about all these sacrifices and everything. But then a few years later in college, when I came to Christ, I thought, this is a whole different book. It just came alive to me. That was the work of the Holy Spirit, illuminating our hearts and minds. The Holy Spirit gives us faith initially by the work of salvation and increases our weak faith, which we need, his work. The Holy Spirit gives us conviction of our sin and true repentance, and so more and more gives us victory as we strive and fight against remaining sin. It's the Holy Spirit who's at work. The Holy Spirit equips us for ministry and amazingly gives us a heart of love for others. The Holy Spirit does that. All of the blessings of salvation which Christ has procured for us by his death and resurrection are communicated to us by the gracious working of the Holy Spirit. And he continues that work in our lives. What a comprehensive gift. I like this John Piper quote about this. When we think about persisting in prayer and persevering and prevailing and God's willingness to hear, he says, when you prevail in prayer for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, more is happening in your life through this prevailing prayer than you would ever imagine. Do you hear that? When you pray, God, give me your Holy Spirit. And it's 
Christians already have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them, but we're to pray for the renewal of the Spirit. In a sense, you know, in, in Ephesians 1, in his prayer, Paul says that he prays for their minds to be uh, enlightened by the Spirit of God, that their hearts would be filled anew with the Spirit of God. He, he prays that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ may give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. He prays in Ephesians 3 that God would grant them to be strengthened with power through his spirit in their inner being. It's not that Paul was saying they're, they don't have the spirit at all, but he's asking for greater measures of the spirit to be filling them and enabling them and empowering them. It's like the church in the book of Acts. In Acts chapters 1 and 2, they're, they're waiting in Jerusalem for the promise of the spirit and they're waiting in expectant prayer. They're having a prayer meeting, waiting for the spirit. And then Jesus pours out the spirit from on high upon them and Pentecost comes. And then Acts chapter four, persecution breaks out and they pray again. And we read at the end of that prayer that the house in which they were, uh, in which they were, was shaken and uh, the spirit was poured out afresh on them. And so, We pray for the power of the Holy Spirit. But what Piper says, back to that point, when you prevail in prayer for the outpouring of the Spirit, more is happening in your life through this prevailing prayer than you would ever imagine. And I would add, more than it ever feels like to us. It feels like to us often, nothing happens, nothing is happening. Lord, what are you doing? Won't you hear me? But scripture is saying, this is God's purpose. It's like he's let go of the bicycle seat and we're called to trust him. I hope that this passage gives you a renewed resolve to seek to prevail in prayer with God. Um, And maybe this evening you're uncertain as to whether you have ever genuinely come to God in faith and in, and in true prayer because coming to Christ for salvation is coming to God in true prayer on the basis of the promises of the gospel and asking God to forgive your sins, to give you a new heart, and to really give you the Spirit of God for the first time in your life. Yes, the Spirit has been at work in your life But the Spirit is the down payment of our salvation that Jesus pours out on everyone who comes to him. It's the guarantee of that salvation being completed on the final day. And the promise of Scripture is, ask and you shall receive. And whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Dr. Philip Ryken tells the story of John Newton, and I hadn't realized that the story of John Newton's conversion ties in to our text about this promise to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. Newton, um, Riken describes it this way. Have you asked the Father for the gift of the Spirit in the name of the Son? He says, one man who made this request was John Newton, the infamous slave trader who, by the grace of God, became a famous preacher and hymn writer. Newton was captain of the Greyhound. This is a ship. When the ship was caught in a violent storm at sea. In the middle of the night, the upper timbers of the ship were shattered and water gushed into Newton's cabin. 
As he clambered onto the deck, the man next to him on the ladder was swept overboard and perished. Newton took the helm of the ship. And in the desperate hours that followed, he reflected on the life he had wasted by living without God. He thought to himself, there never was nor could be such a sinner as myself. Then, comparing the advantages I had broken through, I concluded at first that my sins were too great to be forgiven. How could a wretched sinner like John Newton ever find grace? As he held on for dear life, Newton began to reason that the best way forward was to ask for the power of the Spirit and then to live by the truth of the gospel. His thinking was influenced, he later said, by the reading of Luke 11:13. That's the last verse of our text, where God promised to give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him. When Newton asked for the Spirit, God made good on his promise and gave him the greatest of all gifts, saving that wretched sinner by his amazing grace in the power of the Spirit. I hope you've seen tonight that the God of the Bible is the God who delights to answer prayer, the God who has done everything necessary for our salvation, the God who sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be the Savior. And he delights to hear and answer the weakest prayer of faith for someone who comes based on the promises of his word, who comes to Jesus Christ. And so if you've never come, I pray that you would come to Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the startling simplicity of your word, your word which has such depth and such breadth to it. There's so much we, we cannot fully plumb the depths of it. And yes, Yet, there are things that are so crystal clear. And this simple call to ask on the basis of what you have promised. Lord, there it is before us, like a great jewel that we have only to pick up. Give us the power to do that, Lord. If there's anyone here tonight who's never come to Christ, and help all of us, Lord, as we pray to be encouraged, to be enlivened, to be... uh, have a greater sense of the Father's love for us and willingness to hear as we consider how weak is our faith and how much we need to come regularly to you. Lord, hear and answer us as we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.